Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert began with one of my all-time favorite overtures. It's Giuseppe Verdi's overture to La Forza del Destino, The Force of Destiny, one of his most monumental operas. Uh, As with so many of his operas, a story of tragic love, uh, unrequited passion, uh, and uh, lots of great sadness and strife. La Forza del Destino, as most Verdi operas, uh, has a rather convoluted plot about Leonora, the heroine, and Don Alvaro, her young lover. Uh, There's a terrible scene early in the opera where uh, Leonora decides to run off with Don Alvaro, and her father, who has different plans for her, tries to intercede. Don Alvaro throws down his pistol because he doesn't want to get into a fight with the father. The pistol goes off and kills the father. So as you can imagine, the entire opera is a sort of unraveling of of their love and her brother's vow of vengeance to avenge his father's death. Strangely, the opera ends up where they're uh, basically, um, they've gone off separately, Leonora and Alvaro, to uh, beg for penance for their, whatever their crimes or misdeeds are, and they both find themselves at the same monastery. But it doesn't end well, as all very operas do not. Uh, so so um, the overture is actually sort of a potpourri of arias or themes, melodies, uh, from the arias that are going to emerge as the centerpieces of the opera. It's a rather extensive, very long opera, but very, very beautiful. And the role of Leonora is one of the great Verdi heroines. The opera and the overture begin with this fate motif that permeates the texture of the entire opera. And it's about as representative an Italian uh, overture as can possibly be imagined. Beautiful, soaring melodies taken from mainly from her arias where she begs God for forgiveness and such. such um, but also uh, this this idea of fate, of destiny, of tragedy sort of permeating the whole overture as it does the whole opera. Uh, and what I particularly love about the overture is uh, that there are these fabulous and somewhat almost uh, arresting, bizarre pauses between the different sections uh, of the overture. Just before each soaring melody, there's kind of a stop, and then that scene kind of enters the stage. So it's it's the kind of overture uh, that was very popular in the 19th century of kind of a greatest hits overture, uh, so that when you then encounter the opera, uh, you kind of recognize all these uh, tunes because they've been planted in the overture. So now, uh, really one of my favorite of all time overtures, Verdi's overture to La Forza del Destino, The Force of Destiny. Uh, The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. 
Next on the program, even though this uh, concert uh, was a, a great artist gala featuring the legendary pianist Andre Watts, uh, because it's an Albany Symphony concert, as ever, we want to include something new and unusual on this concert as we do on all of our concerts. So staying with kind of the dark fate motif, uh, I had heard a, a great piece by a young composer whose music I've, I've really enjoyed through the years. His name is Dan Visconti. He's currently uh, living in, in Rome, Italy, uh, because he was the winner of the Prix de Rome, the Rome Prize that's given out to young American composers, uh, one or two young American composers every year. And as part of the prize, the young composer gets to go spend a year at the American Academy in Rome. So Dan's there now writing and enjoying uh, Roman and Italian culture. This is a piece he wrote a number of years ago. It was kind of his breakthrough orchestra piece, and it's called Black Bend. And it's a a very ghostly, uh, very bluesy piece. According to Dan, it was inspired by a legend about a train wreck many decades, uh, maybe even a hundred years ago, uh, on the Cayuga River in Ohio. And uh, it's said, according to Dan, that when you you pass over this bridge or when you pass through this area of the river, uh, you can actually hear the laments of the victims of this terrible tragedy uh, from many, many years ago. So uh, Dan, taking that as kind of the idea of the piece, cast this probably six and a half or seven minute piece as a fabulous sort of blues piece. It begins as we sort of just hear the sounds of the water and the river and the spirits. And then it sort of launches into this fabulous blues. Uh, And and I think uh, Dan said something in his program note and in discussion about the piece about the fact that, uh, that when you hear a great blues singer, there's so much sort of feeling and so much depth and so much sort of accumulated tragedy in the sound of a a, a great blues vocalist that he thought that was a a sort of great um, analogy for for the voices of these these lost souls. So the violins sort of uh, turn the piece into a, a gorgeous wordless blues gospel lament. Here it is, Black Bend, uh, a really American roots celebration by American composer Dan Visconti. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Black Bend by Dan Visconti, played by the Albany Symphony. To close the first half of our program, uh, which had happened just uh, after the new year, I thought it would be lovely to include some of my favorite music by one of Europe's greatest 19th century composers, Johann Strauss Jr. Easy for us to uh, sort of dismiss light music, as it's called, uh, as, as somehow um, less important than the great symphonic works of the past. But in fact, Johann Strauss Jr., even though he worked his whole life in in the light music genre, uh, writing waltzes and polkas and, of course, some wonderful operettas, the most famous of which is Die Fledermaus, Strauss Jr. was as great a composer as any of the, the more, quote, serious composers of his day. In fact, one of my favorite stories about Johann Strauss Jr. is that after his death, his daughter-in-law went to visit Johannes Brahms, arguably the most important and serious composer of the entire second half of the 19th century. And uh, there's a wonderful photo of them, and Brahms has autographed her fan, and he's actually sketched the opening notes of the Blue Danube waltz, da-di-da-da, and it says, Leider nicht von Johannes Brahms, sadly not 
by Johannes Brahms. So Brahms was a huge fan and friend of Johann Strauss Jr., and uh, he was an absolute rock star in his day. I remember reading once a biography of Johann uh, Strauss Jr. and discovering that he ran about seven different um, gigantic sort of dance parlors, dance sort of restaurant dance halls, and he would run in a given evening from hall to hall with his violin, introducing his latest polkas and his latest uh, waltzes. He had a whole phalanx of librarians and of chefs and cooks and, and instrumentalists and copyists, and he would just put on a different show every night at all of these different venues. He was a huge culture figure in, in this era. So this is maybe his greatest of all waltzes, the emperor waltzes. And what I find so fascinating about this set of waltzes is that um, by this point, early in, earlier in his career, Strauss had really written all this music as functional music to be danced to. But by the end of his career, his his evolution of, of waltz form, of waltz writing, had become so incredible that these really stand more as, as tone poems, as concert pieces. And I remember back to uh, once when I was a young conducting student uh, living in, in New York City, City and still at Juilliard as a, as a graduate student, uh, Herbert von Karajan, who was still just barely alive, was the end of his life and career. Uh, he brought the Vienna Philharmonic, which was not typical of him. He usually brought his own orchestra, the Berlin Philharmonic. He brought the Vienna Philharmonic to Carnegie Hall, and they were doing some very substantial program of Bruckner Symphony and this and that. And they were also doing an evening of Strauss. Strauss music, and I very much wanted to go to the Bruckner evening and couldn't get a ticket, but I got a ticket to the Strauss evening and, you know, didn't think it was a very important thing to go to being young and not very clever. And I went to this concert and I discovered that these works, like the Emperor Waltz, are, are really tone poems. They're more like Richard Strauss than like what we perceive Johann Strauss to be. And Karajan and the Vienna played them with such love and, and so broadly and, and with such an expanse of sound. Uh, I just thought they were the most incredible things I'd ever heard. So ever since then, I've been wanting to kind of replicate that experience by playing these pieces more as tone poems than as kind of mm, cha, cha, mm, cha, cha. And the Emperor Waltz is one where it is so such a, a beautiful through-composed piece, and it's uh, so uh, evocative of this elegant 19th century world that when one really plays it with love and, and, and great attention, uh, it becomes an incredible artistic experience. So here now, uh, one of Strauss's greatest and last waltz uh, sequences, the Emperor Waltzes. I should mention it's, it's followed by a, a charming little polka, the Pleasure Train polka. Uh, there was a pleasure train that, that went around and, and this uh, was a piece that uh, Strauss Jr. wrote for that train journey. So two beautiful, beautiful pieces by Johann Strauss Jr., the Emperor Waltzes, followed by the Pleasure Train Polka. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. The major work of the evening, of course, was uh, Johannes Brahms's second piano concerto featuring the legendary American pianist Andre Watts. Andre Watts, of course, has been on the scene for 
I think more than 50 years, even though he's only in his 60s. Uh, he had a very early debut uh, as a 16-year-old. Leonard Bernstein invited him to perform on one of his legendary Young Persons concerts, uh, and he played the Liszt First Piano Concerto. And uh, Bernstein was so impressed with him that a few weeks later, when Glenn Gould, I believe, had to cancel, no, maybe it wasn't Glenn Gould, when there was a cancellation, Bernstein had the manager of the New York Philharmonic call Andre, who was still only 16, and invite him to play the Liszt on subscription concerts with the Philharmonic, which he did. And it happened, as, as Andre explained to me, there was a newspaper strike on. So instead of the newspapers covering the concert, actually all the major magazines did, Life magazine, and and the, the program was also broadcast nationally. So here was this 16-year-old kid who hadn't even gone to college or conservatory, who uh, all of a sudden was on the most high-profile uh, performance of essentially the year, this broadcast from the New York Philharmonic, and really became an overnight sensation. So uh, he ended up having a fabulous career starting at, at the age of 16 and playing regular dates all over the country and the world, uh, and then had to sort of finish his education and went off to Curtis to work with the great Leon Fleischer and did a lot more work and, and postgraduate work uh, to refine his, his musical skills, and yet at the same time was already this major artist, and he's really held the stage. For all of us in our region, we know him because he's come so frequently to the Saratoga Performing Arts Center and has played a, a great, great number of incredible programs there. So the Albany Symphony and I were, were honored to invite him back to play this special gala concert with us. He'd performed only once before with the Albany Symphony, very, very early in my tenure, probably 17 or 18 years ago, uh, when he came and did a, a benefit concert for an organization called Classical Action, uh, Classical Artists Against AIDS. And he played a monumental program at that time. I remember it well. It was the two-list piano concertos, for which he's incredibly famous. Those are some of his signature pieces. Followed on the second half, those are two wildly virtuosic pieces, even though they're rather brief, followed on the second half by the Rachmaninoff Second Piano Concerto. And it was an, a dazzling performance. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that for whatever reason, his car was towed. So here he had given his uh, services for free and come up and done this incredible program. And he walked out of the hall to discover that his car was missing and he had to go pay to get it out of the, the car pound or wherever they take those things. So this time we were much more careful and promised not to let his car get towed. And uh, we're very happy to have him back to play this great uh, Brahms second piano concerto. I had not known that this was another of his major signature pieces. In fact, he said that it's one of the pieces that he's probably played more than any other work in the repertoire, uh, which is quite surprising because it's one of the longest, most exhausting, most daunting pieces in the in the repertoire. It's um, a piece that's actually uh, separated by a great number of years from Brahms' first piano concerto. You know, he only wrote two, and the first was a rather early work and a somewhat experimental work. It was often complained about as being a symphony with piano obbligato. It happens to be a piece that I think is tremendous. But when it came time to write the second piano concerto 22 years later, Brahms was a much uh, more established and expert um, master of, of form, uh, having had all those years to perfect his skills. And uh, the piece is a, an absolutely singular piano concerto, just in terms of the, the breadth of it, the the profundity of it, the profound nature of the, the material, the fact that it it does so much. You feel sometimes as you're listening to it almost as if the, the pianist is playing chamber music because it's so intimate in the way the piano interacts with the instruments and it's so conversational and it's, it's an extensive, extensive piece and yet, although it an artist like Andre Watts makes it sound easy. It's by all, all my all my piano virtuoso friends assure me it's one of the absolute most devilishly difficult pieces in the repertoire. You're asked to do incredibly big-handed things, just with 
unbelievable splaying huge numbers of notes uh, at all times. Uh, it's a very daunting virtuoso workout. And yet at the same time, an incredibly intimate uh, look at Brahms as a mature artist. Uh, one of the things that makes it so long is that it's not in the conventional three-movement form. It's in a four-movement form. Uh, and Brahms loved to tease all of his friends, so he sent out a bunch of letters to friends as he was working on it. Oh, I'm working on a little bagatelle of a concerto. It'll just be a little plaything, uh, when in fact he was writing the most monumental work for piano and orchestra of all all times. Uh, and then he said, well, there's a little wisp of a scherzo that I've added. Uh, the second move, the first movement is a, a big, extensive, beautiful form that starts with the famous horn call, which is answered by the, the piano, and it's, it's comprised of very big musical periods. Uh, so it's a very expansive, very broadly imagined architectural form. And uh, Brahms, interestingly, puts in this additional movement, the scherzo, this fast, devilish D minor uh, movement second. Uh, and he, he even said to a friend, you know, it's a little wisp of a scherzo, but in fact, it's a, it's a gigantic wisp of a scherzo. It's followed by a gorgeous slow movement, one of the great slow movements in the piano concerto repertoire, uh, which is almost as much a, a concerto for the solo cello as as it is for the piano, uh, and they have this wonderful dialogue. There's even some discussion that maybe it's it's referential to his relationship with Clara Schumann, and that you know she is the cello and he's the piano, or vice versa. And then because there's been so much tumult and such broadly big conceived uh, architecture in the piece thus far, the finale is actually a kind of light, wonderful sort of Hungarian dance movement, and uh, kind of quite the opposite of what one would expect. It's not a barn burning, crashing finish to this monumental work. It's a much lighter, almost playful kind of finale. Beautiful four-movement concerto, one of the great works of the entire canon of works for piano and orchestra, the Brahms Second Piano Concerto. It's performed now by the legendary pianist Andre Watts with the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.